All right, now you'll notice if you look inside the cover, right on the inside of your book, that's just where you're going to put your name. But there's a little, there's a little sticker there, and on the sticker, we'll have our first slide up. On the sticker, you have this little statement that's made. Uh, it says, Jesus has transformed me by... And what's happening at the camp, on the, on the Saturday night of the camp, we're going to have a, a, a meeting, get together with everybody there, all the kids, and we're not having the kids go out somewhere else and watch a movie. That's not fair. They've got to st- stay with us and be with us. So um, we're going to talk about this statement, Jesus has transformed me by. And what we want to know is what you're going to put in after. Jesus has transformed you by... And you can tell me what he and how he's transformed you. So if you want to talk to me about your walk with the Holy Spirit, you want to talk to me about your life in the Word of God, you want to talk to me about your life and fellowship with other people, you want to talk to me about something that happened to your life or in, in your life uh, that, that changed your life, that's when we want to hear it. So that's the question. And on the, Friday, on the Saturday night, we, when we come together, we're going to actually look at that question and we're going to answer that question in the forum situation. And the children are going to answer it just like the adults. And um, we're going to have some singing and there's going to be some items for us, song items for us. We're going to sing together and we're going to pray for everybody. So that's what's happening on the Saturday night, okay? So we're giving that to you now so you can prepare for that. You can, you can get everybody... You can put that first one up, that... that that's just to show the kids that they can get involved in Jesus Transformers. Not bad, eh? All right, okay. I didn't draw it. I got given it. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So be prepared. That's coming up in two weeks. This week also um, we will be sending out to you uh, some um, material in the ma- email, which will be forms so you can know what's going on. Uh, there will be about four or five sheets in the email. So that will be coming to you in the email. If you don't have an email address, come and see me today and um, give me um, the necessary uh, information so I can post it to you. If you could do that, that would be great. So that should be coming out. And please, um, a lot of you haven't paid yet. I mean, it's all right, you know. We don't need the money, but if you could pay us this week, that would be great. Okay, so that's the camp coming up. Are there any anybody else want to make any statements about that? Everybody's happy about that. If you're not happy about that, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's just ask the Lord to help us today. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you as a body. We recognise, Lord, that without you we can do nothing. Lord, it's not possible that we can even function correctly without your help, Father, to keep us on track. And Lord, we just are completely dependent on you and we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. You said you'd never leave us nor would you ever forsake us where we may boldly say the Lord is our helper and we shall not fear what man shall do unto us. And Lord, so we put our trust in you today. We ask you to open our ears that we would hear your word. I ask you to help my mouth so I can say the words clearly. Lord, I ask you to help us to put these words into practice in our community. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Now, what I want to talk to you today is about community. I want to talk to you about community. Yep. An authentic, life-changing or life-transforming community. I want to discuss this idea about what God is doing with us and how God is changing us to be more like himself and how God is helping us to change others to be more like him as well. And so today I want to talk to you about an authentic, life-transforming community and what elements are involved in, in in that community. God is fashioning his church. And I, and I think in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and just to have a look in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, I think this is it up there, but I want to read a few verses from that passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Ephesians is in the New Testament. If you go past Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, Romans, Acts, Corinthians, and you start heading towards the, the back of the book, you'll, you'll come towards Romans, Galatians, and then there's Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then there's Ephesians. 
Ephesians is a, a letter that was written by Paul. It's a, called a prison epistle because he wrote this letter when he was in jail. And he wrote it to the church at Ephesus, to the people that he had led to the Lord, to the church that he had established in Ephesus. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a letter to encourage them. In, um, in ver- chapter 2, he actually talks to us about the, the mystery that God has um, set up and that he has uh, brought peoples together. In verse 14, he says, He himself is our peace who has made both one and he has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man and from the two thus making peace. Now he is talking about the fact that he brought two kinds of people together. He brought the Gentiles together and he brought the Jews together and he made one new man, one body of believers who were made up of Gentiles and Jews. He took down the dividing wall of perdition, which was in the temple. They had a, a wall that was through the temple, which was a, a wall of division, which was the Gentiles were on one side and the Jews were on the other side. And there was a de- demarcation, a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles who could go into the temple. Well, Paul is telling us here that that line or that wall of petition has been ripped down in God and God has brought man the gentile man together with the jewish man and has made them one body he's taken away all the exclusivity that was there in the temple and he's made peace by his son jesus and goes on and says um, and that he might reconcile them both to god in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near uh, we're a kind of a far off Far off from those days anyway. That was a couple of thousand years ago. So if you'd like to think, think about that, he's preaching through the word to you today, those who are far off. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And this is what I want you to look at. Now therefore you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building being built or fitted together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and his spirit. So he's in the process of making a community. It's called the church. He's bringing the community together. And in in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, we have these words there. The mystery is that, that through the gospel, the Gentiles also... Our heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so that's what happened. And this community has got some basic differences to it. And if you go through um, a number of passages in the, in, in the New Testament, you get to get glimpses of what Jesus expects his community to look like. Now in Matthew chapter 5, he, he sits and he, and he gathers his disciples together and he begins to talk to them about their value system. He tells them about blessed are the poor in spirit and he goes through all these values that uh, believers should have in their lives. And in verse 13 and 14 he says that um, they will be uh, salt and light if they have those values. They're going to be like salt purifying a community in which they live. They're going to be like light shining out to those around them. Um, They're also uh, blameless and pure. It says in in Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 he says that they will be blameless and pure shining like stars in a, in a dark world. That's what his church is going to be like. It's blameless and pure and it's shining like a star in a dark world. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that the, it's a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We, we're given some glimpses of what this community, this authentic, tr- life-transforming community is going to be looking like. Uh, we're told we're in, in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, that we're citizens of heaven, heaven and a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. That's a, that's a, a snapshot. Little, and there's, there's tons more verses if you're going through the New Testament to look at what the church is like, going to be like. There's tons of verses there just telling you what God is expecting or what God is going to be doing in his body, in his church. We're also told that that church is very purposeful. Um, it gives its light and it shines to everybody in the house. We're told that, um, that, that once you look at this, this body of people, that you'll see the good deeds and you'll glorify their Father in heaven. 
it tells us that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known to the, to the principalities and powers. To everybody around, they're going to see somehow the wisdom of God as they look at the church. You can see that this is not going to be an ordinary group of people. Uh, we, we look at the church today and we can be quite disillusioned because for most of the time we don't see a light shining in a dark place. We see more a reflection of a dark place in the, in the place that's meant to be light. We, we don't see salt and we don't see light. We see a corruption of that which should be salty. We, we see the morals and the, and the values of a world corrupting a people rather than the morals and value, values of a godly people actually changing the world. So it's all topsy-turvy. We don't see this. But God is in the process of making this again, of raising up a people for his own sake. We're, we're told that uh, we built together to become a dwelling of his spirit, that God would actually live in us by his spirit so that we'd be sensing as we come together a sense of God's spirit here, that we'd be saying, now, isn't that amazing? When somebody gets up and shares you know, I was going to say something like that. It was just like what was on my heart. And we see God actually working through the body, ministering through the body to one another, sharing and, and talking. It's like God is in our midst, somehow expressing himself to the rest of us. It's a, a dynamic that is strange. It's like weird. It's like, you know, how did that person know that about my life? You know, it's that God actually told them and they cheated, they listened to God, and they said, you know, I want to pray for you. I, you know, I've got a word of scripture for you. How did they know that those things were going on in my life? That's the sort of thing. God lives here by his spirit. Now, the Jews, Israel, was a type of the church. Now, you know, I understand what I mean by type. A type is like a parallel. So in the Bible, what you get is you get, the Bible speaks in the Old Testament about things in the New Testament, but it, it speaks of them like in a picture. So what we have is Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament and God had a particular plan that he wanted to fulfill through the Israelite nation. And the Israelites act as a picture of what is coming in the church. You know, they went through the Dead Sea, you know, the Red Sea. They went through the Red Sea and were baptized through the Red Sea. It's a picture of baptism. You know, they, they traveled through the wilderness and God provided for them when they were in the wilderness. It's a, a picture of our life and as we're going through life and as they go into the promised land, it's a picture of Christian living and how Christian life is meant to be overcoming and overcoming the different things. So we're going to have a look at this, this type and we're going to have a look at the things that God shows us in this type, this Israel type, so that we can see something of what God's expecting in the, in the New Testament church. Okay, we're going to go then to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1. And we read this verse. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gurkhashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations uh, larger and stronger than you. So what he's saying is the Jews were coming out, they're coming into the promised land now and in Deuteronomy he stops and he says to Joshua, tell them I'm going to drive out seven peoples, seven nations before them and I'm going to drive them out. They're going to be the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now there were other people there too but these are the ones that he mentions at this point of time and he says, he says to them, you're not to have anything to do with these people. You're not to actually marry them. Don't give your sons to their daughters or your, take their daughters for your sons. Don't uh, get into any trade relationships with them. Don't strike any treaties with, treaties with them. Have nothing to do with them because these people, he says, they're bad. You don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, there's a parallel with that whole idea in the New Testament. We're not meant to have anything to do with the world. We're meant to actually put off the world. We're going to not go and do the things that the world does. All the things that the world wants to do, we're not meant to be doing that. You know, if the world's getting drunk every Friday night, well, we shouldn't be getting drunk Friday nights. You know, that's not the thing that we do. We're not into drunkenness. We're not into party reveling and stuff like that. We're not into immorality and all those sort of things. That's not what we do. We're into a holy life. We're living for Jesus now. So we don't sort of say, well, I go to church, but I also do all this stuff on the side. And you say, well, you're a hypocrite. I mean, that's what happens. The church is a hypocrite because it keeps on doing that. It keeps on building these relationships. But what is God speaking to us there for? Why is he telling the Jews these things? Well, he's telling them as a picture for us to learn something. In verse 6, he says to them that, that the Jews are his special treasured 
people. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. He's talking about them being a precious community to him. He says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. No. He says, For you are the fewest of all people. So it wasn't the size of the people that was impressing God. God had a plan for the people. And the fact that there was few of them, it was okay. God had set his affection on them, even though there was just a few of them. He had a plan for community for them. Now, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we, the believers, are God's holy people, his royal nation. That we're his special possession, a people belonging to God. We, the church, are his people. So here's the parallel. So I ask myself the question, so what are the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites? Who are these people? Now what you do when you do your study, you, you, you find out that all the words in the Bible generally have a secondary meaning, in names at least anyway. They, they, they come up with a, with a name. You know, you, so you go to a Strong's Concordance. If you're doing any Bible study, you go to a Strong's Concordance. And in the Strong's Concordance, it'll give you the name. It'll give you the name Hittite. And then it will tell you what that word actually means. It's called the etymological root of a word. You find out where the word came from and what is in behind the word. So let's ask. Graham, do you know what your name means? Who knows what their name means? Okay, Deborah, what's your name mean? One who loves, uh, Deborah means be, ones who love the sweets in life. Who else has got a name? Emily, what's your name mean? Industrious, Industrious and artistic. Yeah, that's great. That's a lovely. Emily, what, do you know what your name means, Eli? <laughs> God Almighty. That's, that's, that's pretty good. You've got a tall order to live up with. And mine means uh, rabid dingo. I do, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's in Australia. It's, cult- it's cultural, te- contextualised. You know, Conway, which is my first name, is Welsh for hound of the plain. Well, in, in Australia, hound of the plain is a dingo. Mark, Mark is, is, is Greek for warlike. You know, and a rabid dog is warlike. And reed is red. So, so it's red warlike dingo. So <laughs> red rabid. Don't worry, mum, it's all right. I don't mind. <laughs> I was named after a nice Conway Twitty Bird or something. Anyway, what's in a name? Well, there's lots of things in a name. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually come and have a look at these names and, and, um, and discover what God is actually saying in behind the thing. And it's the, the Bible says in, in, in um, I think it's in Proverbs, that the king hides a treasure and we have to find the treasure. So we've done a little bit of digging. So I want to bring some little treasures so that you can have a look at these things. So if you're going to do some study, we're going to look at Hittites. Now, the Hittites are, and if you can just keep those things rolling. Together we, because you know that uh, God actually is, uh, is going to be working with us to drive out those nations before us. So it's not just us. It's, it's we and God are driving out those nations before us. It's not us having to do this. It's God is working with us to do this. Okay, together we're going to overcome the Hittites, and the Hittites are the influence of fear. Now, where do we get that from? Well, if you go to the Strong Concordance, the meanings of the name are there in the Strong Concordance. The Strong Concordance states that the Hittites, it's number 285 in in the Strong Concordance, are sons of Heth. The word originates from a combination of two words. The first word is terror, and the second word is to break down either by violence or by fear, to abolish a fright, to be afraid, amazed, beat down, discouraged, caused dismay, to go down, to scare and to terrify. So they're the people that they had to drive out. So there's a picture here. God is saying, if you want to overcome, if you want to be a, an authentic, transforming community, what you've got to do is you've got to deal with this aspect of fear. Can't let it beat you down. Can't let fear control you. Can't let fear run over you. Can't let uh, fear abolish any good that you would do, make you frightened, 
beat you down, uh, uh, completely bring terror into your life. You can't let fear do that to your life. You have to overcome fear, and by God's power, he's going to help you to do that. A life-transforming community, then, is a community of faith. Because faith addresses the problem of fear. Faith brings boldness into our lives. That's the first one. Think about that now. How does fear affect me? Am I plagued by fear? If I'm plagued by fear, then God has a plan for you. He has a plan to help you overcome fear and to become a person who is girded up with faith. So as a life-transforming community, God wants us to be a people of faith. Okay, let's have a look at the Gurkhashites. Together we overcome the Gurkhashites. God and us helping us to overcome the Gurkhashites. We say the Gurkhashites is immorality and idolatry. Now we went to Zondervan's to find this information. So Zondervan's encyclopedia is a, a, a biblical encyclopedia that's just about got everything in it you'd like. You can probably find something similar on the net through the, through the Blue Letter Bible. And you look up the word Gurkhashite and it will tell you some information about the Gurkhashites. So in, in, I, have a, I have a book, you know, books on my shelf, Zondervan's books. And on page 780 it said that the Gurkhashites were the forefathers of the Phoenicians. That's all the information. You don't get any more information than that. And then it goes on. It doesn't tell you what the Gurkhashites mean. It doesn't have a meaning for that name. It's like a blank in that area. So we don't know what Gurkhashite means. But we're told it's the forefathers of the Phoenicians. And that's an interesting connection because we're told Phoenicians was the home of Jezebel. And Jezebel was the one person. I mean, you, when I say you're a Jezebel, what does that immediately bring into your mind? Sorry? Immorality and idolatry. Jezebel. She's a real Jezebel. Why is that name so... Because the Bible tells us about a queen called Jezebel. King Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel came from the Phoenicians. And she brought the whole of Israel into distribute through uh, practicing immorality and getting people to practice immorality and idolatry, worshipping Baals. So much so that God's anger was so stirred up against them that in the end, he had to completely just about wipe them all out just to get rid of this immorality and idolatry. It all came from the forefathers, the Gurkhashites. The Gurkhashites came, the Phoenicians, from the Phoenicians came Jezebel, from Jezebel came this immorality. So an authentic, life-transforming community has got to be a community that has dealt with immorality and idolatry. It's got to have a pure and holy dimension about it. So if we want to be a life-transforming community, purity and holiness have got to be what we're about. Purity as in we're not to be immoral. We're not to be pursuing immoral things. Holy as in God is our total... No idolatry, no, no putting ourselves out and worshipping idols. This is no putting anything else before God. God is the number one in our lives. It must be pure and holy if we'll be a life-transforming community. You see, God does not collect crowds on this sort of doctrine. This sort of doctrine sorts people. It sort of weighs people in the balance. What do you really want to be in life? Do you want to be pure and holy? Well, that's a bit of hard doctrine. We don't want to keep on listening to that one. We want to have a little bit of um, whatever it is on the TV that we watch, which is a little bit, you know, risky. Why? Well, because that's what we're used to. Why? See, God wants to us to be different. He wants to change us. Okay. We've got to come together. And the third tribe that we're told to deal with, or the third nation that we're told to deal with, is the nation of the Amorites. Well, I say, well, the Amorites, that's the influence of image and deception. Now, how do we get that? Well, Strong's Accordance. We go to the Strong's Accordance again. And the Strong's Concordance tells us in number 567 that it's the word, the group word is Emory, derived from 599 in the sense of publicity, i.e. prominence. And then it comes from a, a, primary, a primary root word, which is a word Amar, which is to say. So we have something being put out there by speech that produces publicity and prominence. Now, at the first mention of the Amorite tribes, of course, is as the children of Israel are coming to the Promised Land, 
as they come up to the promised land, they send in 12 spies into the promised land. 10 spies come back and they are completely flouted or, or, or struck down by what they've seen. They've seen these incredible um, people standing there, the Anakites, the giants of men. You know? In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord hates us, so he brought us here out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Why? What they had seen, what had been publicized, what they had been open to when they went to the promised land was big, ugly men and big, dangerous situations. Yes, the fruit, there was plenty of fruit there, lots of honey and lots of good things, but they looked at the people and they made a comparison. We are small. We are but grasshoppers in their size. And they lost faith. They lost heart. They got the sense when they made that comparison that they were going to be overrun by them and they lost heart and they then came back and they told the Israelites, you can't do this. Only two people, Caleb and Joshua, said, you know, let's go in and let's take these people. All the rest decided they weren't going to and they were going to stone Moses because he had brought them out of Egypt to face these sins. See, this is the spirit of the Amorite. Well, the Amorites didn't do anything. They just advertised themselves. They publicized themselves as being big and strong in the way that they did it. And the, the Israelites went in there, they looked, they saw, they made a judgment according to their appearance. They came back, they made a comparison, and they were defeated by that. We've got to get away from image and the deception that comes in with image. A life-transforming community has nothing to do with image. Creating an image, or putting out an image, or following the image of a world. It has everything to do with trusting and believing what God has said. You see, there's a second encounter that's very interesting too. Because the Amorites were still there. You know, they, they went in there and the second time, and now they, they, the Amorites know that they're going to be you know, marked for destruction. And the Gibeonites come in. Now, the Gibeonites were a... The next slide. The Gibeonites were a, a tribe of the Amorite people. So they knew that the Israelites were coming to get them now. This is the second time now they come to the, the, to the, to the boundaries of, of the promised land. This time they've come into the promised land and Joshua's manning them. They haven't been able to, to scare them. So they know that they're, they're in for trouble. Now they're living right there on the promised land border. So they, the Gibeonites sit down and say, what can we do about this? And they get together and they say, we're going to deceive these people. We're going to go and get a treaty with these people. So they saddle up a couple of donkeys and they put food in the thing that's old, that's dry, that's moldy. They put it in their baskets and they, they, they put on worn out and ragged clothes. And they walk up to Joshua and the army and they say, we want to have a treaty with you. When we left our hometown, which is a long, long, long way away, our clothes were new and our food was fresh. Look at our food. It's all moldy and it's all falling apart. Look at our clothes. It's almost worn out. And they didn't seek the Lord to find out what was going on here. They believed the deception and made, Joshua made a judgment by appearance. He was condemned by the publicity of the Amorites. And him and the people made a treaty with them that they wouldn't kill them. And they swore an oath that they wouldn't touch them. Which is exactly what God told them not to do. Make a treaty with them. And how did they get that treaty there? Because they deceived them through the image and the publicity. You see, God's people, God's holy people are not governed by image, by the appearance of things. They're governed by seeking God and knowing God and understanding God. It's not about putting an image out there or trying to present an image, a deceptive image of something. It's about being real. God's community is a real community, warts and all. One of the things that I love about the book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts, there is nowhere when you're reading the book of Acts where it's taking out all the bad bits and just leaving all the good bits. You read Josephus and he writes all the good bits about the, the, the emperors. You know, because Josephus is a historian, he's a Jewish historian, but he's not about to write all the bad stuff about the, the, the Caesars because if he writes the bad stuff about the Caesars, he's probably going to be a, a short-lived historian. So he writes just good things. But the book of Acts writes every warty thing you can find. All the bad is in there as well as the good. It tells you about Ananias and Sapphira and what God does. So that's a bit awkward. You read the book of Corinthians and you don't get a nice, 
you know, shiny finish on the book of Corinthians. You, you read all the terrible things that are happening in the church. You know, this guy sleeping with his stepmother, you know, people taking each other to court. You think, well, why did you have to put that in there, God? Because he's not interested in making it all glossy to make it look like it's perfect. He wants you to know it's real. This is a real community. There's no, there's no rubbish here. This is real. That's what it's about. He's not trying to put an image up there so you can think it's something, but it's something else behind it. That's the Amorite spirit. And we're told to drive out with God the Amorite spirit. And try and be this, try and try and do this. God's authentic community, life-changing, transforming community is a real community. Warts and all. So the an authentic life-transforming community is a God-seeking, truthful community. Joshua didn't seek God. If he had sought God, God would have told them, these people are just living down the road. They're in deceiving you. He didn't seek God and that was the problem because then God said, okay, you can't touch them now. You'll have to let them live with you. That was the beginning of the problems, these guys. All right, let's go to the next one, the Canaanites. Together we overcome the Canaanites. Now we call this the influence of materialism. We go back to the Strong's Concordance to have a look at the word and find out what the roots of the word mean. Strong explains the word as meaning peddler, merchant or trafficker. To bend the knee, humiliate, vanquish, bring down, and subject or subdue. Now, isn't that interesting? It's, you know, it's not just peddling. It's not just trafficking. It's not just being a merchant. It's using peddling, trafficking, and merchanting to bring down something. Now, there's nothing worse in our society than materialism. It brings you to naught. Just go hunt that stuff. Go get that stuff. Got to have that stuff. It consumes every part of your day, every part of your night, just to get more stuff. What are you going to do with the stuff when you get the stuff? You're going to hoard the stuff, put it up on your shelves, have more stuff. You know, and then you watch the TV and get more stuff again. Oh, there's another. There's a later model out. You know, I got the iPad one, but I want the iPad two. You know, what's different to the iPad one? It's only got a few more little things on it. Well, well, I need it though. I must have it. I can't just not have it. I have to have it. And I saw them, and they're going very cheap. You know, let's say let's have it. You know, I've got to have the stuff, material. And until you're left working your butt off all your life to collect your toys, because you think that life's success is about collecting toys. And in the end of the exercise, at the very end of the exercise, you discover you've lost everything. You've been vanquished by this. This peddling, this trafficking, this, this nonsense. You, you lost your family time. You lost your relationships. You lost everything that you had. It was, you were bought into subjectivity because you were, you, the borrower is servant to the lender. That's what the scripture says. The borrower is servant to the lender. And you put yourself out on a Visa card or a MasterCard just to get yourself something and now you have to pay it off and you lost all your time. And life is so short, mate, you'll, you're pushing up daisies before you even get it paid off. That's all right, the house will pay it off when I'm gone. Vanquished through materialism. We're told to drive it out. We're not told to have a, a relationship. Well, you know, prosperity doctrine actually tells you, you know, if you get more stuff, they'll see that you're more spiritual. And if you have more stuff, you're more spiritual, got more faith, you know. So our churches look like they are you know, glossy churches and we spend millions and millions of dollars decking those churches out to make them look like they're successful so that everybody who comes will think, if I join that church, I'll be as successful as the people in that church. I'll have money and I'll be middle class and I'll, I'll, I'll high class, whatever. I want to be part of that church because it looks so vanquished. Overcome. Brought to naught. Because they haven't understood that wasn't meant to be a treaty with it. We're meant to drive that. How do you drive that one out? Well, the Bible tells us to drive it out, you have to be generous. If you're rich, give it away. Well, we don't even ask for it here because we're not even interested in it. We've got too much now, we're trying to spend it. This is, this is upside down to this, this world. This is not 
subcultural stuff like, you know, the culture's running this way and we're running under this, doing the same thing that everybody else is. No, no. Jesus community runs in the opposite direction. So you give Jesus community some money. What does the community do? It doesn't put it in a long-term investment and make more money out of it. It gives it away to the poor and the needy. An authentic, life-changing or life-transforming community is a generous community. It's a community that's learned to be generous with its funds. Meet the needs of others. That's what it's about. That's our greatest challenge, to find out how we can give to, what we can give to. Okay, what what about the parasites? Together we overcome the parasite. I call the parasite the undisciplined life or the influence of the undisciplined. Why do we come to there? Let's go to the Strong's Concordance and let's see what the Strong Concordance says. What it says, it's the, the parasites are inhabitants of an open country. They're derived from a rustic village. Now, rustic means broken down or pretty rough. If you, if you, if you look at um, architecture and look at uh, uh, modern architecture, it's very fine lines, beautiful lines, everything is uh, beautiful surface. If you look at something that's very rustic, you're going to a log cabin that's got mud stuffed in between the, the logs, uh, as rocks, all, it's just... It, there's nothing finished about it. It's just partly broken down. It's rustic. That's what the word rustic means. It's the same root as uh, um, comes to the uh, um, an open country, unwalled town, without walls, unwalled village. So it's, these people obviously lived in, in, in open plains, but they lived very uh, rustically, and, and there was no walls around them. Now, I think about that, and I think to myself, you know, when there's no rule, walls, there are no boundaries... Where there are no boundaries, people are generally undisciplined. So I think that's it for me. Parasite spirit is an undisciplined spirit. Parasite spirit is where you have no walls and no boundaries in your life. We have a breakdown in our society. You would be seeing it starting to move and generate right through every nation now. Breakdown. We have the masses starting to rise up, just a few hundreds, a couple of thousand, you know, starting to protest around the world now about the big end of town. You know, the rich should be feeling bad about their riches. The big banks, the high profit end, the 99% of people now are rising up and saying, it ain't fair that you have all the goodies. Why should we be paying all these interest rates to the banks who've got billions and billions of dollars of profit making? And so the, the common man is rising. I mean, it happened in history once before. It happened in the French Revolution. The, the poor started to rise up with their pitchforks. We got nothing. The, the queen says from a balcony, feed them cake. And so they came and they took them and they chopped their heads off. They chopped all the aristocracy. They chopped their heads. They just took them out take them up, put the guillotine up and chop their heads off. Boom, you got money, take your head off. Bang, that's it. That's, it was about to happen in, in England. And a guy called John Wesley came along and he broke into street preaching. And in the street preaching, he started to contact people who are broken people, who are rising up, who are rising up against the rich. And he broke them down into core groups and he started to teach them the, the principles of the Word of God. And that core groups grew and grew and changed the fabric of the English society. So we got a lot of our schools started from Wesleyanism. The Methodist church came out of that and it, it turned the whole nation upside down. It actually stopped a French Revolution situation happening in, in England. So what have we got now? We've got a breakdown in the community again. We have no walls. Well, well, boundaries. You know, boundaries come from parents, responsible parents. Well, we say, well, you don't have to, you know, put boundaries around kids. We, we don't want to put boundaries around kids. Boundaries, we, boundaries say, look, here's the line. On this side, it's wrong, and on this side, it's right. There's the boundary line. Kids usually run straight up to the boundary line. All the time, run straight up to the boundary line. That's the way they look. And they just watch. I'm here on the boundary line. Put the foot over the watch to see whether you're going to reinforce the boundary. Whether you're going to say, no, that's the boundary line. and that's it. They test the boundaries to find whether you're really meaning it or not. Of course, that would be great if you had a nuclear family there actually reinforcing consistently the boundaries of discipline in the person's life. It would be great. But our society doesn't have that anymore. 85% of our society gets married after they've cohabited together. 
And the stats of the, the relationships surviving after you've cohabited together are, are appalling. 77% of people who cohabit together before they get married, the stat is now, now that it's 77% of them are, end in divorce. 16% end in, in separation. So that's 93% end in a marriage breakdown. And only 7% survive. That's horrific. They, those statistics drove the, the problem that we have in the UK with the people now rioting. You know, when the last riots were, they're smashing everybody, get what they're... No, no, boundaries. Wait, wait. Well, because dad's not around. You know, mum's not... Mum's out working to try and make ends meet, you know. We're having a tough time. There's no male figure around to give us boundaries or guidance or anything. Everybody's doing what's right in their own. And it's right for me to get what I want now because you shouldn't have it, so I'm going to break you in and steal it. Break down society. No boundaries. Postmodernism takes away any boundaries that you have and says, you know, what's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. What's right for me is right for me. What's wrong for me is wrong for me. You know, there are no absolutes anymore. You do whatever you want, whatever you like. It's, it's up to you. You just make up your own mind what's right and what's wrong. Well, I just want to, I want to do this. Well, that's not right for me, but that's all right. It's right for me. You know, there are no morals anymore. There's no... There's no boundary lines anymore. There's no fences anymore. There's no walls anymore. And we have a breakdown in our community. The emergent church doctrine, which is where the church is going now, has taken truth and said, you can't know truth. You can't know absolute truth because it could mean anything. Every road leads to Rome. You get people like Billy Graham saying, the, 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 the way is so broad and the mercy of God is so wide. Even a, a Muslim or a Hindu, if they didn't know the name of Jesus, if they were sincere in their faith, would get there. Why? Well, because the boundary lines have been broken down. Postmodernism has taken over where modernistic thought Started modernistic thought finished around about the 1960s, which the modernistic thought is this. You know, science will tell us the solutions to bring us into a utopic environment. Science has all the answers. All science actually showed us was that they could have a couple of world wars and have mass weapons of destruction. You have uh, Hiroshima, you can have uh, Vietnam. You, and, and, and you know the hippies? They sit there and they, man, you guys are lost. We just want love and peace. 1960s, everybody's love and peace. 3% of couples used to cohabit in the 1960s. Now this year, this year, it's probably in the 90s cohabiting before they get married. That's the breakdown. We threw out all the moral principles to adapt this free thinking. So that if you now say that you believe something, I went to a course this week. I, I was astounded. This guy's teaching us about how to, how to interview people who are caught in addictive behaviours, like alcoholism and drug addiction and stuff. It's called motivational interviewing. Nowhere do they want to confront or talk about the bad side of stuff. In fact, they don't even call bad, bad. They say, now what's good? They want the person to tell you what's good. Well, it's probably good for me to not drink. And then it's, what's not so good? What's less good? They won't say what is harmful. They won't say what is bad morally. They say what is less good. Like they're all good because they, they have taken away values out of life. You can't have a right and a wrong anymore. You can only have good and less good. Too scared to actually say that something's wrong because that's judgmental. You can't be judgmental. You don't want to judge people. Now I'm all for calling a spade a spade, you know. There's so much depravity out there that they're even pushing a line of pedophilia is okay, it's just different. That's what they, You go to the sites, you can read about the push in the United Nations to make pedophilia just a normal thing. It's just another diversion, like bestiality. It's, like, it's just a difference, you know? You like it that way, I like it this way, you know? It's for man love, you know, boy love, you know, whatever, you know? How, how bad do you think it can get? It's rustic. It's broken down. We're told as believers, if you want a life-transforming community, if you want an authentic life-transforming, you've got to have some moral basis for it. 
You've got to have some moral basis in the word of God. That's what it's about. You can't just sail on and say, everything's all right. You know, who can know the truth? You know, everybody's right. Let's all come into a happy time and lovely community here. If the community is rat, rat filled and infested with all the co- wrong kinds of values, that's not, lo- that's not life transforming. It's just collecting. Okay. Enough about the parasite. So an authentic, life-transforming community is going to be a disciplined community. There's going to be discipline in it. You'll have to have discipline in your own life. I I mean, I I hear you saying, Jay, that you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Well done. Well done. I mean, in the end of the exercise, that's a discipline to actually wake up. You might say, well, I'm not actually trying to wake up. I just wake up. Well, okay, but you have an option, don't you? You could roll over and go back to sleep. Or you can pick up the iPad and you can start to read the Word of God. You know, there's seasons and times when God wakes you up in the morning. There's seasons and times where God actually stirs you up to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And it takes discipline to follow through on those things. It takes discipline to follow through when everybody else is asleep. Morning by morning, Jesus said, he wakens my ear to listen like one being taught in Isaiah 50. It was like, you know, everybody else is asleep, but Jesus is getting woken up by God. So go, come in here, I want to talk to you. He'd, he'd go in and he'd wait all night and he'd pray all night as the God would speak to him. Let him know what was going on. But why is that? Because Jesus was disciplined. Okay. Together we overcome the Hivites, the fleshly life, the Hivites. What does Strong tell us about the Hivites? Well, Strong defines the word Hivite as meaning to live by implication to show. And we, as you go and read about it, so the word Hivite is derived from the Hebrew, from the word, and I don't even, Shavar, I think it is, which means life or, lo, or living. It's the Hebrew version of Eve, the mother of all living. So here we have a word. He says that you're meant to drive out those who are showing sort of life. Now, this reminds me of, of, of the, the passage of Scripture in, in Revelation chapter 3. The church of Zardes. The church of Zardes. This is what Jesus said to the church of Zardes. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, Phoebe and the girls got a movie yesterday. They watched a movie at our place. It was, what was it? Honey? Honey 2? It's a, a black girl and she's a dancer. Have you seen it? Who's seen Honey 2? You've seen Honey 1. We've seen Honey 2, honey. Well, you know, you go and have a look at Honey 2. Uh, she's a gorgeous black girl and, you know, and, and she's mixing it with others and they're all doing a dance competition, you know, getting down doing that stuff, you know. And when you... I'm not even going to try it. I mean, I can do a little bit of it, you know, but... <laughs> I just show Jenny. She likes it. <laughs> Hey, with the pole. <laughs> Actually, my it's bent. <laughs> Why you find that funny? I didn't do it. Jenny did. <laughs> All right. So, so when you when you watch these movies, there's an amazing thing that's taking place. You've got this sort of music going. So it's all rap, rap, rap stuff and they're all doing this sort of stuff. You know, they're working, walking and doing stuff that's really strange. And, and at the same time, they ah, like they're having a really wonderful time. I know that stuff would probably hurt them. If I did that stuff that they were doing, I'd probably put a disc out or something. It, like you can't spin around on your head and, and jump off onto your feet and then go back onto your face and spin around and, and, and without it really hurting. You know? And I know that just doesn't happen naturally. I know that they have to practice a long time and go through a lot of pain to actually achieve that. But when you look at them doing it, you would think they're having the most wonderful time in their life. That they're really extremely lively and happy. Now, Coke understands that too. Coke understands that young energetic people who look very beautiful, who dance like that, are very good for, for sales. So Coke actually puts it out there because they want you to believe, because all advertisements is about belief, it's not about product. They want you to believe that if you drink Coke, you're going to be able to do that. Or you're going to look like that. You're going to be like that. You'll have an appearance of life, but really it's, it's, there's no life in it. You know what Jesus is saying to us? As a church, 
you can make a lot of noise and you can jump around, you can have a mosh pit, you can, you can, you can scream and you can holler and you can have lots of drums and lots of guitar no notes playing and it can be really trendy and young and, and it can be, oh, yes, get down there, you know, and it can be dead. It can be dead. And you know why it's dead? Because it's high by its spirit. It's appearance of life. It's the presenting of a life. It's the show of life but it's absence of real life. Real life changing. You know, the power of Christianity is not in the ability to party like the world. The power of Christianity is the power of saying no when everybody else is saying yes. When everybody else is saying, oh, I want to get down and have some pleasure, the power of a Christian is the one who says, no, I'll have some hardship, thanks. It's the ability to turn away when everybody else is turning toward. It's the ability in walking in the other direction when everybody else is going in the other direction. They're all going down there to have fun and have a party and everybody's doing it. Every peer group is doing it. They're all going to... And you know what? The Christian's plotting this way. Everybody's going on Sundays to do this stuff. Whoa, yeah. And the Christian's saying, you know, I'm going to have some fellowship in a life-transforming community. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to the word of God. I'm going to have my heart wrapped around God's word. I'm going to twine myself with God. I'm going to spend some time in prayer and pray for those that are lost. And during the week, I'm going to go and try and get them and them to come this way. Now we're going out that way and have some life. You want to think that thing through. Think it through very well. Because the judgment that God gives to the, the church at Zardes is, is, is powerful. He says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but in reality, you're dead. We want to be a life-transforming community. So that means that we want to have a changed community. It's a changed community. It doesn't look like... I mean, it doesn't mean that we have to be sad and boring and, oh, you know, here we are, come to church, let everybody cry now. Uh, uh, you're a Christian, you can't laugh. Better not laugh, because if you laugh, you might be being worldly. <laughs> you know, let's all cry because we're Christians. Sad faces, please. No, well, no, listen, listen, that was pharisaical. The Pharisees walked around like that. The religious leaders of the day walked around like that. They dressed themselves in righteous clothes, and they had this very straight face. And, and when they were fasting, they made it even worse. You know, you look at them, and they look, oh, he's fasting. Look at him, he's fasting. Jesus says, wash your face, smile, and look like you're not fasting. It's not about putting on a, 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 a pious, godly sadness. It's about living life in reality. It's about being a real person, being part of a community that knows the values in the world are messed up and we should live it by different values, be changed in our lives, changed from to. Okay, now this is the last one. And everybody said? <laughs> Okay, it's the Jebusites. I like this one. This is where it all started for me, I suppose. The Jebusites. They were the most tenacious of the tribes. Out of all the tribes that Israel went to conquer when it went into the Promised Land, the Jebusites were the ones that were the most tenacious. In fact, right up to the time of David, they were still around. And the reason they were still around, because they had this city, the Jebusite city, and that was the city of Jerusalem. They actually lived in the city. And the Israelites couldn't actually get in to get them until David came along. So the word Jebusites is to the trampled or the broken life, overcoming the trampled or broken life. Okay, what does the Strongs tell us? Well, the Strongs Concordance says that the Jebusites, the word Jebusites means a threshing place. The primary root means to trodden down, to trample, to loathe, to tread down underfoot, to be polluted. Interesting words, aren't they? Why would God put all those meanings together like that? Well, he put all those meanings together so we today could actually understand these things. We could look at those things and draw the lessons from them for our own lives. Let's go to the next slide. This is what happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 16, we read the encounter of David and as he's going to, to the Jebusite city to overcome the Jebusite city. Now, the Jebusites are in there and they said, you'll not get in here. David with his armies out there. You're not getting here. They said, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. So they, they were on the, on the walls of the city and they mocked David. You can't get in here. 
Our lame and our blind are stronger than you, David. You're not going to be able to get rid of us. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. And on that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemy. And that is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Now, this is what happened. In that place, they had a, a, it was like a river that flowed out underneath the, uh, underneath the um, city. They had fresh water inside. That's why you couldn't take them out. So these guys went up the river underneath the city and into the city through that way. And they conquered the city that way. And David said, you're going to overcome the city if you, if you go up this way. Now, what's in a name? Let's have a look what's in this little... David means love. That's what his name means. It means love. The Jebusites are the ones that are trodden down or underfoot. So we're talking about broken people here. Love overcomes the city of broken people. Like that? Where everybody is bound up and busted, love comes in and brings freedom and brings healing and brings life. David said that Jerusalem, we call it Jerusalem, and that's where it's got a name from. And it's, Jerusalem means the dwelling or the foundation of peace or the habitation of peace or the people of peace. So to, to broken people, to smashed and trodden down people, God's love comes in and brings them peace. You like that? Isn't that beautiful? But you know what the enemy is to love? Blindness and lameness. That's our enemy. What is blindness? It's a lack of faith. You can't see. Lack of vision. You can look at your situation, you can look at the size of this church, you can look at your own lives and say, there's nothing that God can do with us. We're busted, broken down, trashed people. You could say that. You could say, you could make it, we're busted down, broken, trashed people. You know what? Love can change that. And you can get a vision to see what you can do. Blindness is not seeing. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith gets you to see. Abraham saw that God could give him a son. Even though he was dead in his body, he could see the promise. He looked at the stars, he looked at the sand, he says, God's going to give me a son. He was 100 years old before he got him. But he saw it with his eyes of faith. Faith sees the unseen. And love sees the problem in front of it. In First John chapter 3, verses, I think it's verse 17, it says, a man who says he has love and sees his brother in need should then do something about it. He sees it. So love actually sees. It has vision. So those who are broken down, the blind and the lame who are there, are overcome by David, the love of God, and he has a, an enemy, and the enemy is... Your lack of vision, love has an enemy, lack of vision, and a lack of mobility. What's mobility? Lameness. Not taking action. Faith acts. It says faith without works is dead. It says that works complete your faith. So that's mobility. Doing something about it is action. Doing, lifting, walking. It's doing something. And it tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, that we're not to love with words, but to love with deeds. And so God is calling us to a life-changing encounter with him, whereby the broken down things of our lives are now invigorated by his love, where we get a vision to see what we can do and how we can help other people. Let's go to the next slide. Love reaches out to the trodden down and the broken. Faith believes that healing can take place. And faith and love together provide a home of peace. I like that. It's all wound up in there, in those words. Those encounters. So what have we learned today? To be a life, authentic, transforming community is to be an uplifting, healing community of peace. So we've discovered seven things that God said with the Gurkites and the and the, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Vegemites and so forth, Promites. Next slide. We learned a community of faith is what God is intending us to be, a pure and holy community, 
a God-seeking, truthful community, a generous community, a disciplined community, a life-changed community, and an uplifting, healing community of peace. That's what it is to be an authentic, life-transforming community. That's what it is. Now, I want you to reflect upon that and think, well, God, what do you want us to do? In the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about and talking about how we can work together with God to achieve a more substantial influence in our society and in our community at large. We're thinking about how we can become more like Jesus and change the lives of people that are broken. You all know busted people. I, I, I work with people and I look at them and I think, I want to talk to them, I, I want to say something to them and I'm, I'm looking for opportunities to speak to people. You do the same. You look for opportunities to speak to people, to, to bring Jesus' light to the people and, and, and the, the opportunities are few and far between. I want to say to you, let's get together and let's become that authentic life-transforming community. I mean, we're already there. We're already doing this. This is already taking place in our lives, but we can do it better. So we're going to try and do that better. We'll talk about it in the next few weeks. We'll talk about it at the camp. We'll talk about it, how we can work together to achieve with God that sort of life-transforming community. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you'd help us to live this out. Help us to understand and reflect upon these ideas that you have laid there in Scripture for us. Thank you for hiding those things there in the Word, Father. Thank you for revealing them to us, Father. Help us to reflect how we individually can work together corporately to achieve these things with you. We ask that you help us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.